Hello and welcome to today's Beaver Pod. Really pleased today we've got with us Lucy Grieve from Rostales and Junior Vice President of the Association. Uh, sorry, President Elect of the Association. Sorry, Lucy. Um, and Tim Barnett, also from Rostales. Hi, both. Hello. Um, today we're going to be talking a little bit about dental, um, dental work in the UK, but we'll start off with some local news. So it's been a relatively quiet Newsweek and one of the things that has come out is the RCVS have published a survey of the profession um, conducted last year and there are I don't know, there are a few interesting things that I think are worth worth mentioning there. We've got um, 80% of those working in the profession intend to stay with it for the foreseeable future um, whilst just over 10% intend to retire over the next five years um, and another 10% look to leave the profession at the same point for some reasons other than retirement. Um, we've got more when men working part-time now now than we had in 2006. That's gone up from 5% to 14%. Um, and in terms of the average age of people working part-time, for women, the average age of part-time workers is 44, and it's a, a rather old 59 for men. Um, corporatization has changed massively. The, the last year, 35.5% of respondents were working in clinical, who were working in clinical practice um, worked for a corporate. 6.5% um, worked for an independent with some shared centralised functions, um, whereas 41% working in fully independent standalone practice. So that's a massive, massive change. And I suspect we all think that that's, that march hasn't finished. Um, I think we're also all very aware that the, the profession has become more feminine. Um, and and male, the male respondents are significantly higher average age. So average respondent age amongst men was 51, women was 40. Um, and again, as we all know, graduates from the past 10 years are overwhelmingly female. Um, so we're we're changing changing our our appearance. Um, in terms of type of work, number of work, vets working in dedicated small animal practice gone up since the 2010 survey it's gone up from 50 sorry 45 percent to 52 and a half percent um with fewer members of the profession working in mixed practice over that period gone down from 22 percent to 11.7 percent working in mixed practice no information in the highlights at least about those working in equine practice um, so i hope that gives you a bit of background as to what's what's the key messages are coming out of the RCVS survey and hopefully there'll be a bit more news for the next people pod. So back to the main topic of the day, um, dental care. So Lucy, you work as a, an ambulatory vet, but you carry out dental care, I know. And Tim, you see a lot of dental referral cases in the hospital at Rossdale's. And, and Tim, you were, uh, in part at least, under the tutelage of the, the great Paddy Dixon, um, what's your understanding of the history of of EDTs and their relationship with uh, with vets? Yeah, so my understanding is um, that uh, a number of people were carrying out routine dental procedures in horses, uh, some of which were vets, some of which were non 
veterinary paraprofessionals and um, the BADT was set up some time ago to give uh, some degree of accreditation uh, and to maintain a standard of dental care uh, that was considered appropriate or is considered appropriate uh, for routine dental work in equine uh, patients. Um, and that was set up by that was set up in part by um, by Paddy and Tim Greet. Was is that right? Yeah, the, yes, I, I believe it was. Uh, there were two of the people that got heavily involved in that uh, early, uh, early in the sort of the early stages of setting that up, uh, and suddenly put a, um, uh, as I say, a degree of accreditation to it, and and and, and sort of set, set set out the standards for for the work that was being done. And that, those standards are actually, uh, I can remember when I first saw them, they're pretty high, aren't they? There's a there's a fairly heft, serious exam to do and and submission of a large number of case reports. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, once again, uh, trying to um, provide, set out and maintain the standards that are needed. And they are uh, strict exams. I mean, it's not, It's uh, my understanding is it's not a walk in the park exam to do. You have to have a good understanding of anatomy. You have to have a good uh, understanding of um, the physiology of the teeth and you have to go, have good practical skills as well to uh, allow you to pass the exam so yeah it certainly is not a walk, walk in the park and certainly there are some vets that have undertaken the uh, BADT exam in addition to paraprofessionals as well so uh, um, yeah there are uh, there are a variety of people out there doing it. Yeah, and I think there are some vets who've, who've failed it as well, certainly on the first attempt. My understanding um, is there are some, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so that, that relationship with the BAEDT is, you know, is a, on one hand, it's close because we were involved in the formation and we're involved in overseeing the standards of the exam that they undertake in order to be a member. But it's also you know, fraught at times, I think, isn't it, Tim? Yeah, I mean, it can be. Uh, it certainly can be. And historically, it has been. And there are still cases today. And I think that there are a variety of reasons for that. It's, um, uh, well, a variety of reasons for why it becomes fraught. But certainly, there are some people on both sides that sort of step over the line or certainly um, uh, that, that, that are doing things potentially inappropriately uh, and perhaps moving out with the comfort zone that has been um that has been set in set in set in stone by the BADT and by the uh, Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons as well and Lucy you're you're sort of out on the ground coming in going onto yards coming into contact with clients who are presumably using dental technicians some of whom are completely unqualified some of whom are BADT qualified um, some of whom may have qualified in some way, shape, or form, and fallen off the rails slightly. What's you, what's your um, what's your experience of all of that? Yeah, I've definitely come across. I think all of the above, um, and certainly back when I qualified, you know, a few, quite a few years ago now. But I, I remember thinking I didn't have a clue. So how on earth would any of the owners be any the wiser <laughs> as to as to who to choose and who is good? Because as we all know, there's no there's no way of checking the work afterwards, really, particularly for an owner. Um, you know, they go on the assumption that the teeth have been done if someone says they've been done and they've been done properly. And um, so the difficulty comes in that there is no way of checking that quite often, you know, there is it's a bit complicated, a bit confusing for the owners. Um, and so I, I try and guide them as best I can. Um, to using people that are A, experienced and B, qualified, um, but also what is appropriate for them and their horse, because that varies, of course, as well, between Absolutely. case and case. 
And presumably you will come across mouths when you're out and about which are uh, which are well tended to and mouths that are pretty poorly tended to. What, what do you do when you come across either of those, Lucy? Yeah, certainly if, if I do come across um, a case where the dental work does not appear to have been done well, um, or at least the mouth is in a, in, is in a, you know, apparent state that you wouldn't expect from the history that the client's giving you and say that, you know, that the person they've said that's done the dental work um, name is not familiar to me already. I would certainly f- immediately go and check if they were a, a vet or be a, on the BADT list. And if they're not, then I would be um, talking to the client about what that means for them, you know, whether that's insurance implications or whether that's, um, you know, quite frankly that person shouldn't have been doing the work that you've described them having done but also if if you know if the work looks like it hasn't been done properly and the person is qualified there is equally I think um, responsibility there in in making sure you communicate via the client obviously or with the client's permission to the person that's done that work and try and find out why it might look at this point not not like the horse is in such good a shape as it should be and that might not be the person's fault there may have been some reason as to why the teeth have deteriorated quicker than you expect or whatever but it's important I think to work together and communicate as a team uh, in the interest of the horse's welfare to try and decipher why that horse is at that point um, you know not not in the best health orally. Absolutely challenging but, but important nonetheless and mm. Tim presumably you're seeing cases that are referred into you um, by vets and you will presumably see some mouths that are well looked after and some mouths that are not so well looked after is it, would it be fair to say that there are there are good dental carers amongst the technicians and bad and the same amongst vets absolutely yeah i think on a on a monthly basis you'll see some pretty poor uh, routine dental care carried out by both um the vets that are sending the cases in to you and you will also see um, uh, cases that have been seen by EDTs and then sent in by the vets afterwards. Uh, and equally, you can see um, you can see uh, poor uh, poor work on both fronts, definitely. And a lot of it does come down to the client as well. I mean, it's in, it's incredible sometimes that we see the cases in and we ask the clients who did the teeth, and they'll explain or say whoever did it did them. And then I'll sort of, I'll explain to them that I'm going to sedate the horse to... and it's 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 you know gasps of horror that the horse possibly needs sedation then you actually look in the horse's mouth and you think this is why you've got a problem it's incredible how many yeah. horses in a year that get referred in for a referral level um, consultation when the horse actually just needed a proper routine dental care and um you know they've spent a lot of money and and burned a lot of diesel getting the horses to us and in actual fact they just needed someone to sedate the horse and have a proper look in the mouth and have a proper uh rasp of the of the teeth Um, and and is that is that you know is that more often than not because the owner is tight and doesn't you know refuses a sedation with the with the first opinion practice or is it we're not very good at selling the reason for needing sedation at first opinion level i would say both i would say that situation arising both 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 scenarios i had this 
discussion with somebody the other day who clearly isn't tight. Um, uh, is quite uh, quite well off, should we say? Um, but just didn't like the concept of the horse being sedated. And we have, you know, we have stallions and mares in Newmarket that they do not like you going in and doing their teeth. They call you in to do the teeth. You know, they call you know the people with a lot of experience in to do the teeth. And then they don't want them sedating, um, which is sort of an oxymoron somewhat, you know, that you sort of, you know, you tie one of my hands behind my back. Um, so, uh, plus, right. no one That's, really wants... Some of, those, some of those stallions in Newmarket aren't worth much, though, are they? <laughs> yeah, why, bother, exactly. why bother with their teeth? I think that's yeah. a good point, though. Sedation is seen sometimes as a bit of a failure, isn't it, I think, by the clients. So you're right, it's an education thing, isn't it, about trying to teach them why yeah. sedation yeah. is actually not yeah. not a sign of somebody failing to do the teeth well without. It's actually an aid to doing the teeth properly, yeah, exactly. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that, I would say, is one of the biggest... It's You can see as well, it's, you know, the majority of the population is right-handed. The teeth that are... Um, always overgrown in problematic cases whereby you, you need to sedate them and they obviously haven't been is the upper right quadrant mm. at the back because yeah. the majority of the population is right-handed and that's your tricky one that you need to do and you're not going to get that done in a horse that's showing any signs of um, any signs of behavioral issues uh, unless it's sedated so you often see that you'll often yeah. see that See, that's going to worry a few people, isn't it? Their, their poor handiwork is going to be spotted because they're right-handed. <laughs> yeah. And that was going to run and refer them in, Tim. <laughs> I've done, I've done, I've, I have actually identified left-handed EDTs before because it's the other way around. And, you know, I have rung them up and said, are you left-handed? Yeah, and don't tell me because they were not prepared to sedate the horse. It's not my fault. You know, that's... That's kind of what you know. We did. We yeah. are faced with that. But uh, yeah, brilliant. Um, uh, talking talking about um, good and bad um, EDTs and good and bad vets. But referrals. Do you ever take referrals directly from EDTs, Tim? Uh, we don't. No, we will. We, as a practice um, and as a referral hospital, will only take referrals from uh, veterinary practices. Uh, we obviously do get phone calls from EDTs and phone calls from clients wanting self-referral or EDT referral. Um, but we we just have a somewhat, in the majority of times, a simple conversation with both the clients and the referring vets and try and smooth the water out to make that happen. But we are very keen for that to happen, uh, whereby there is a referring vet uh, that is going to be looking after that horse. Because by the time they're coming to us, if they're coming in for, example, an extraction or associated sinus surgery, there is going to be some need for veterinary aftercare. Um, so I always like to have some um, security in the fact that there is a vet going to be going and looking at that horse at least within the first 14 days. You're sending them home with antibiotics, you're sending them home with anti-inflammatories. Uh, as we know, there's a risk in both of those drugs. You know, the last thing you want to do is just send a horse off with antibiotics. It goes down with diarrhea five days later and there's no vet assigned to it. So, uh, um, it's just a bit of security to have that. And as I say, so that's I, a stance yeah. that we, we stick to. I should probably know, but I'm not sure. It's, I, th I think that's a sort of Royal College guidance thing as well, isn't it? I'm not certain, but does, there, does anyone yeah. know for sure about that? I think it's about continuity of care, isn't it? Come under that kind of stuff. Uh, there has to be something in place for the for the interest of the horse um, and the welfare of the horse. Um, I think you're right. You can't just sort of send something home with no plan yeah. for if something were to go wrong. 
and that's probably code of practice probably something i should look up and then let people know about um so in terms of relationship with edts and interest in dental care tim you have you seen a difference over the last five ten years um i think the main difference that I think I've noticed since I was uh, first graduated uh, out on the road in Yorkshire was that there are far more vets now interested in routine dentistry and dentistry as a whole. It's certainly become a, uh, I don't want to use the term fashionable, but it is a very popular uh, part of the veterinary sector now. And I think uh, Beaver's probably seen this with the interest in CPD that um, uh, uh, has has developed over the past few years, the amount of CPD that's on offer. um, And uh, we've seen a lot of practices that are sole uh, veterinary dentistry practices doing first opinion um, equine veterinary dentistry all around the country. Um, They're not necessarily clinics, they are People moving around and, and working as 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 um, dent, uh, people, uh, you know, veterinary dentists uh, and veterinary dentistry people, um, and yeah, there's a certain, lot more certain advantages to that. I would. It's quite. A, it's a slightly improved lifestyle. I would think in lots of cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe so. Um, I think it was Paddy that said there's no such thing as a dental emergency. So uh, on call <laughs> requirements are pretty pretty low in most of those uh, most of those scenarios, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you if you have a passion for dentistry, which a lot of people do, uh, it's probably a very good good way to live your life. And uh, a lot of them are attached to referral centres as well, or certainly have a good relationship with referral centres. And um, if you're providing the clients with with a complete package, a complete dental care, and uh, you know the Sell, uh, selling the dream, Tim, selling the dream. <laughs> well, so I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy, have you seen changes over over the time you've been on the road? Yeah, I think there definitely is a, a more of an interest in using vets for dentistry now. Where I'd say when I first qualified, I think most horse owners are like, "Oh, I wouldn't have a vet touch my horse's teeth; they don't get any training." Or you know, you have to you, don't, you wouldn't go to the doctor to see your to have your teeth looked at, sort of thing. And that was the kind of attitude that you'd come across. Whereas now, there's definitely more awareness, I think, um, about the difference between EDTs and vets and what we can offer. Um, you know, in terms of things like sedation and clinical exams and, and, and more advanced work, obviously, than an EDT, EDT can undertake. And I think the owners are starting to understand that a bit better, but there's obviously still a long way to go um, and yeah. more awareness to be had. Absolutely. I think and, the term uh, dentist is a difficult thing, mm-hmm. to, and it's just a very quick point, is the term dentist adds a different um, connotation to, to, to what people are doing, that's sort of echoing what Lucy was saying there. That is yeah. something that's found. And technically, you're not allowed to use the term equine mm-hmm. dentist. It is one of those protected terms like specialist and nurse. You have to have a qualification to be a dentist, and the only qualification to be a dentist is to be a human dentist and uh, be a, men- a member of the, um, that organization. So we have to be very careful with the terms, but it's very easy to slip into you know equine dentist and it's uh, uh but we have to try and avoid that but it's it's very tricky and it's very difficult to explain that to 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 to, to clients uh, and you do sort of wonder if the if the horse hasn't bolted with that one in, in terms of most mm. horse owners will call them equine mm. dentist, won't they however yeah. however wrong it is um yeah yeah it's just it's a popular term um in other 
sort of on other things, which we don't really think of dentistry as being a particularly dangerous occupation. But um, Lucy, you were mentioning earlier that you've you just got an injury that you're worried about. But also, um, I know a colleague of yours you know, had a pretty serious time of it following a following an infection didn't it? yeah that's right I mean a colleague of, of ours um, did end up with sepsis as a result of a you know fairly minor otherwise assumed minor wound to the back of the hand whilst carrying out routine dentistry and certainly I've just got a very inflamed looking cut on my knuckle right now which I'm sporting from doing a dental um, only a couple of days ago so I do think yeah we need to be very aware of that just on a day-to-day basis as practitioners out in the field um, that you know, I, the horse's I, mouth is filthy. Really. And I think, I, I think, I think he took it very uh, just as just a scratch on my hand. But he mm. was in intensive care, wasn't he? Yeah, he was in yeah. hospital for yeah. a week or so. Full blown sepsis. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. serious. You know, um, was on IV antibiotics for a long time. Um, very, very unwell. Really, really unwell. Yeah. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't, yeah, be light, light-hearted about this. We need to, we need to take it quite seriously. So take care out there. Um, but also, Tim, I know you. I know there's no. You, you, you're not, this isn't a fully developed concept that is generally accepted, but you have some personal thoughts on the impact of dental work on, on horses' um, bacterial load as well. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of work um, recently uh, up out of Glasgow and Edinburgh and various other institutions around showing that there is a, a very large bacterial population in horses' mouths, and uh, we know that after certain dental procedures that bacteremia can occur. Uh, So there is an implication, potentially, we know that there's an implication of dental treatment and dental disease in humans with regards to endocarditis and various other things. And when people are immunocompromised for whatever reasons, then there is a certain um, risk involved in dental disease and dental procedures. And I think we certainly have took a, a stance in our hospital whereby uh, horses undergoing dental care will not have um, medications uh, of joints and or uh, intramuscular medications where the potentially immunocompromising drugs such as steroids at the same time we do tend to leave a time lag in between we don't have a set rule uh, but we try and maintain that for example a horse that comes in for a poor performance workup and it's identified with periodontal disease i will normally treat the periodontal disease get the horse back two weeks later and uh, re-examine it if all is well then we'll medicate it at that point now and i think it's just an important little side uh, thing to think about that it's um, as I say we've we've got evidence to show that these horses do have quite a heavy bacterial load after some dental disease and dental treatments and I think it's important to consider that and once again that goes back to the whole um, making sure that everybody involved in the care of the horse knows exactly what's going on because as, as I think uh, our colleague proved they're pretty dirty places these horses mouths so if you open them up to the horse and then start putting in uh, immunocompromising drugs uh, then it, uh, a serious situation may occur who knows who knows it's just who one knows, of those extra things we've thought about yeah yeah and a really and a really interesting interesting point something to something to cogitate on um and probably a good point to end tim thank you very much for that i know you're very kindly you. going to uh hang on and tell us a little bit about your ascent to the dizzy heights um <laughs> and lucy <laughs> thank you very much as, as always for your input and see you again next time Thank you very much. Thanks both. Thanks, Liz. So, Tim, thanks for hanging on. Um, 
perhaps you could start by telling us what you what sort of environment you grew up in were you around animals as a kid yeah yeah i was we always had uh pets um uh, when i was at home uh dog and rabbits and and things so yeah i always had small animals lived just down the road from a dairy farm so i was around and about dairy cows uh, from quite an early age so yeah just always loved loved being around animals and playing with them and yeah uh, and, and horses horses part of that growing up experience were you pigtails and pony t- pony club not particularly, to be honest. Um, the, um, the the love of horses came a lot later on, uh, probably during, I did a degree uh, before my veterinary degree and, and sort of developed a love for working with horses then, really, and just uh, came to horses late on in life and kind of fell in love with working with horses and, and uh, just, uh, just took it from there, really. So did you... Did you always want to be a vet and you did your first degree in order to become a vet or did you, was that first, what was your first degree? Yeah, my first degree was animal science that I did up at Newcastle University, uh, which was uh, an experience living in Newcastle for three years uh, (laughs) with a couple of mates from school back home in Yorkshire as well. So it was good times. Um, And that was, was that always a stepping stone to being a vet? Yeah, well, no, it's... Yes and no. I think I always had it in the back of my mind uh, that I still wanted to, 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 to go to vet school. So I started looking into uh, applying to vet school during that degree and, and trying to work out how I was A, going to get in and B, going to finance going through as a second degree. So, um, But I sort of took the plunge and did it and set off somewhat... Um, somewhat on a wing should we say <laughs> didn't know whether i was gonna have the money to finish the degree but somehow managed to get through there so uh, um yeah so uh, yeah so so you then did you go directly from newcastle to you were at edinburgh is that right yeah i did yeah no i took a year off uh, i was at edinburgh right. yes i took a year off in between uh so i for some reason my I wasn't allowed to take a student loan straight after another student loan, so I had to take right. a year off, uh, which was fine actually. I worked as a worked as a sales rep for a pharmaceutical company, which was right. great fun, and um, spent my days driving around the North Yorkshire Dales trying to sell wormers to, for, to farmers, <laughs> and uh, saved a reasonable amount of money in the process. So it was a great <laughs> year. So I lived at home as well. So it was great fun. And then yeah, so, I went so anti-antimintic resistance is your fault, is it? Uh, I wouldn't blame it entirely on me, um, <laughs> but I was probably a contributing factor somewhat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so then you went up to Edinburgh. Yeah. Great time. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, loved it. Loved it. I mean, it was a second degree, so um, it wasn't quite as wild as three years in Newcastle, but it was still really good fun. A lot of great people that I still uh, know to this day and still still visit and see. And uh, yeah, just great people, great times, great city, uh, great vet school. Great team of yeah. people teaching us up at, at, at the vet school there, up in Edinburgh, and, and uh, yeah, it was great times, really good. So, who were your, who were your, who were the teachers that you look back on as being seminal to you then? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot. I mean, crikey, I hate listing people because you're going to forget somebody and feel really bad in sort of <laughs> three hours' time when I remember. But um, David Cottrell, preclinical, sadly passed away now. What an incredible teacher he was. Um, uh, then moving into clinical years, all the people that are still there, we've already mentioned Paddy Dixon, obviously, Sophia Barracksai, 
the late Martin Weaver became a very good friend um, and fortunately worked with these people afterwards when I did my residency there as well. Um, yeah. You know, these people were great people to work with and learn from. And uh, yeah. yeah, great. Really. So, so when you, when you got the tick in the box, became MRCVS, mm. where did you, where did you head off at that point? I went home again. <laughs> so uh, I went back to Yorkshire, sort of just keep dotting back to, to, to Yorkshire. And I worked in a small animal and equine practice uh, where I'd seen practice uh, since right. I was a kid, uh, which was great because it was like going home, uh, gave a beautiful bit of breathing space to sort of um, uh, get my feet uh, on the ground and just sort of get bedded in and a great support network. I would recommend that to anyone going out now is just make sure your first job is with a supporting team. And it was great, great, great practice. I still speak to a lot of the vets that work in there and um, the practice principal, I speak to him quite regularly. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, be, be a very good friend now. So yeah. And it's important having those those sort of mentors mm. within the profession. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been very fortunate in in, in having the mentors. I say John Levison at the first practice I was at, and then I was very fortunate that I spent some time seeing practice with Marcus Head at Rossdale's, and it was him that kind of started the the journey at Rossdale's. He rang me up and said, "Do you fancy becoming my assistant?" I mean, I didn't, you know, I wasn't thinking of that at all. And of course, he rang up and said, "Do you want to come and?" being my orthopedics assistant and here we are um 13 14 years later and it's so that that was that was whilst 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 you're at practice in 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 yorkshire you got headhunted by marcus i wouldn't really call it (laughs) headhunting everybody said no to it and so he sort of he remembered me vaguely from chatting about sport one day so no i wouldn't say it was headhunted in any way shape or form it's just we got on very well and uh um and uh we still do to this day and uh yeah it was it was it was a great opportunity and grabbed it with both hands and ran with so, it and, uh, so did you do you did a, do you did a period of time there and came went away and came back or you've been there ever since yeah no i did uh i was orthopedic assistant for for marcus and then i did the internship there uh, so i did then the hospital internship working uh, with the rest of the team uh, which was yeah. great uh, learned a lot from that and then i did a surgical residency at edinburgh uh, which was co-supervised by rostales as well so i spent a lot of time coming back to rostales and doing more surgeries with the team there which was great so it was great because i did a surgical residency where there was sort of you know six or seven surgeons i was learning from on a regular basis so it was great sort of you know learning everything from the the soft tissue things with paddy and saf and then all the orthopedics with uh, andy and richard and tim greet of course um at uh, rossdale so it was it was great it was great times brilliant and you've 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 got various different certificates and diplomas haven't you the the, your most recent one, I think, is your um, European Veterinary Dental College diploma. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, what yeah, you know, what drove you towards teeth, Paddy? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, it was kind of um, surgery has always been my main drive, um, yeah. and that's my first love in working is is, is surgery and. Uh, so I did my surgical residency with the team at Edinburgh in the soft tissue team. And a lot of that work was, was dentistry. And, um, you know, uh, Paddy does infuse some 
degree of passion in everybody that it work that, that works within fatigues and uh, I think it's just being taught things correctly uh, yeah. and um, you find you can do these things after spending so much time with him and and there was a you know there was a need for that at Rossdale's as well there was a team of great people Pete Ramson um, Pete Ramson and uh, Rob Dallas were doing the teeth at Rossdale's and they were busy doing other things so they needed someone to do the teeth as well so it kind of fitted in nicely and so yeah. you know I'm very fortunate in being able to do the teeth and I'm very fortunate in being able to do the surgery as well and they kind of mesh together you know there's certain overlaps with the especially with the sinus cases and the head and neck yeah. surgeries they all sort of fit together nicely so it's a nice nice sort of service to be involved in a nice service to offer uh, to the to to to, to yeah. the uh, uh, to the referring practices you know so for someone like you Tim who's now he's now got many more letters after their name than in their name um <laughs> and is and is working you know at the cutting edge of doing some really exciting stuff um you know, what what ex on a on a week by week basis is there is there a particular aspect of a particular type of surgery that excites you every time you you head you hit you know you're doing it oh yeah i mean definitely i mean the airway surgery and and, the, and you know, i'm very fortunate enough to be to be doing quite a bit of the airway surgeries and being involved in the airway diagnostics and you know working with people from other clinics uh, from around the world with things like the nerve grafts and things um that has just been amazing getting involved in that and seeing the nerve grafts working and uh, you know, we we are, uh, you know, we as a profession are in a transition stage with that, and we're we're getting really good responses uh, to these newer surgeries that we're using, or modifications of of the surgeries that now seem to be working much better than they have in the past. And yeah, it's great. You see them in the young racehorses that have got laryngeal collapse and putting the nerves in, and then they're, they're in work with minimal complications, which compared to previous surgeries is is, is great. And it's great when they work. And it's, it's uh, we'll hopefully be doing lots more in the future. Um, and sort of uh, yeah, no, that's that's what we love doing. Yeah, and that, so how close to you know the the fifteen year old you whilst you were dreaming of being a vet, not anything else, would you have been dreaming of what you're doing now in any way, shape or form? Uh, other than also every weekend playing in a band on a stage at, at Wembley or something. Um, yeah, we've pretty much fitted the bill, you know. Um, yeah. uh, so, no, I think, yeah, I've been very fortunate. Uh, right place, right time, uh, knowing the right people and... Um, uh, or getting to know the right people, so I've just been very fortunate, and uh, um, yeah, and well, that's that's, sort of... that's very good. So, I mean, I, I I know from your the, the time that you spend supporting uh, education generally and be and Beaver education that that's something that you're you're passionate about and very generous with your time about. Is would I be right in thinking that it's some that's something that you have a real interest in as well? Yeah, definitely, and I think that's coming from the time as a as a as a resident. Um, and uh, you know, Paddy was very keen on us teaching people, and uh, uh, it is. I think it is important, and it's it's quite a nice, nice the wrong word, but it, it it's a really rewarding thing to do. Um, you know, is is offer especially for new graduates and the. Um, uh, you know the, the the fundamentals series of, of CPD yeah. I think that's incredible because it just allows people to take what they've done at vet school 
uh, add some experience and then consider it all again and push it on a little bit. And I think that's incredible. And uh, being involved in the new graduate dental courses has been great from that point of view because uh, you know and of course I take something away from every year every year after the new grads getting all that team of eight people together we're all chatting away and I learn something every year from that you know it's great you know sort of sat with yeah. the other lecturers and things and it's it's great it's a nice nice thing to be involved in and it's yeah it's good it's good brilliant, brilliant. well I know Tim on behalf of um, Beaver and all our members th thank you for all you put in um, but before we go, if you had your time again, would you do anything differently? You're happy where you've ended up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely happy with where I am at the moment. Would I do anything again? No, I probably wouldn't. I've thought about this a few times. Would I have tried to do, you know, would I have took away that other degree and gone to vet school quicker? And no, I wouldn't. In retrospectively, it's the whole thing has been great. And uh uh, great memories, great experiences, and yeah, I'm just uh, very happy to be where I am now. I'd have probably tried to play more guitar and definitely sort of made that Saturday gig every, every <laughs> week. Other than that, yeah, we're all good. Brilliant, brilliant. Tim, thanks very much. Really good to speak to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, David. Cheers.